Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Francis Giles. He's a specialist on security, energy, and political trends in North Africa and the Western Mediterranean, and an associate senior researcher at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs. From 1981 to 1995, he was a North Africa correspondent for the Financial Times and has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Le Monde, and El Pais. Our conversation today focuses on the Maghreb and the wider North Africa region. And we begin with Western Sahara. Francis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Can you, first of all, give us a snapshot of the tensions between Morocco and Algeria over Western Sahara, a former Spanish colony? After Spain withdraws in 1975, Algeria backs the Sahrawi independence movement and its uh, fighting wing, the Polisario Front. Meanwhile, Morocco has effectively annexed most of the region. What sort of tensions are there between Morocco and Algeria over Western Sahara? Well, um, for all the trouble it's caused, and indeed the closing of the frontiers, and in a way the freezing of relations between the two countries, notably economically, one must note that the last time the two armies skirmished was in Angela in, in early 1975. And whatever attacks the Polisario may have led within, inside Morocco, inside the Western Sahara, in the 15 years that followed until the truce of 1991, there has been no encounter between the Algerian and the Moroccan armies. And I'm not alone in thinking, contrary to the opinion of many people, that it's most unlikely that Algeria and Morocco would go to war on this for two reasons. One, because both sides know it would be catastrophic. And secondly, because I don't think that for the Algerians, the Western Sahara or Morocco is really their priority. And this is another point which many people, I don't think, quite grasp. Of course, the Algerians have provided sanctuary for the Polisario and for the Sahrawis, but you think that that is pretty much as far as they will go? Well, in 1975, when Morocco actually took over the Western Sahara, the, many of the tribes split. Now, many the tribes in the north, of the Rebigibat, many of them had links of allegiance to the Moroccan crown, which, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd come and gone over the centuries, but there were old links, there is no doubt. But many tribes and extended families just split. Half stayed in the Western Sahara, and the other, side, the other half decamped to Algeria, because in a, in a way they were hedging their bets. And this is not just nomadic tradition, I would say that it's the tradition of many groups, because nobody knew exactly what was going to happen. And uh, so this has led to this um, extraordinary complex situation. And as I say, the fact that Algeria and Morocco are most unlikely to go to war uh, means that it is in a way a forgotten conflict. It is also a forgotten conflict because the former Secretary of State James Baker III, who in the late 90s led the United Nations mission to the Western Sahara, pointed out in an interview, I think, with the BBC in 2002, that none of the major powers, and he meant uh, the United States and France in this case, or probably Spain, were willing to put in political chips to solve this problem. And therefore, if the major powers were not willing 
to really put their money on the table, then the problem would not be solved. And he said this 18 years ago, and we are there, we are here where we were 18 years ago. Well, let me ask you this then. The decision by the former Trump administration to recognize Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara in return for Morocco normalizing with Israel, this famous or infamous Trump transactional approach to foreign relations, on the surface, that may look pretty straightforward, but it is complicated, isn't it? And what are the impacts and what is the knock-on in the Maghreb? Well, uh, in terms of the Moroccans, of course, it's all to their advantage. They have traditional relations with Israel. Whether recognizing Israel will attract more Israeli investments or Emirati money and Israeli investments, that's a possibility which could help Morocco, although the elite may be in favor of the normalization with Morocco. What the average Moroccan thinks, I think, is a very different question. And I really don't have the, que- the answer to that question. So it might rebound to Morocco's advantage. But there again, uh, we, we, we just don't know. In the, it puts Europeans on the spot, it puts particularly the Spanish and the, the, uh, uh, the Europeans on the spot. Why? Well, Spain, uh, Spain has two enclaves in northern Morocco, which it owns because of treaties dating back to the 15th century. But if you go on the premise that internationally recognized legal frontiers don't matter, then the Moroccans could turn around and say, well, why not Ceuta and Melilla? So it's a very awkward, although the parallels aren't, aren't perfect, nonetheless, it makes it awkward. And for the European Union... It's in a very invidious position because officially it sticks to the United Nations uh, rule. There hasn't been a settlement on this issue, but it has signed over the years a number of fishing agreements with Morocco because the waters off the coast of the Sahara are very rich in fish and it's continued fishing and therefore in a way it's paid no heed uh, to to what West Saharan rights might be on the fish. So everybody's stuck in a very awkward position. But I don't see the EU going back on its position simply because if it just wants to play a realpolitik card like Donald Trump did, then, of course, you can just imagine what the knock-on effect in Ukraine is. Well, if frontiers don't matter, then who cares about the Russians in eastern Ukraine? So it opens a Pandora's box legally and politically. So the Europeans are sitting there but as the Europeans have no strategy, broader strategy on North Africa, uh, well, it's a bit like the problem they have with Russia today. They, they don't have a strategy and they're not quite sure what to do because different members of the EU disagree amongst themselves about what the aims should be. Now, you said something, I think, that, that's very interesting and is, is really all about the normalization game, that the Moroccan people, as opposed to the elite, still support the Palestinian cause. And this is reflected in the other countries that have gone on board, you know, with the normalization. How significant is that? Well, I think that one has to say two things about the Moroccan monarchy. One, the dynasty, the Alawis, have been in power since the mid-17th century. And they are legitimate, like probably no other Arab monarch and most Arab Republican leaders are not. So the the Moroccan monarchy is deeply rooted. It's legitimate. 
and uh, the the Mahzen, the ruling elite, really is are the people who make the decision, the king and the people around the king and the leading families. So on the whole, the Moroccan people will go along with the decision. On the other hand, we don't really know because the Moroccan, the Moroccans will not, will not be consulted, will not be asked. So what they feel in their heart of hearts, I think there is no Arab or Berber west of Jerusalem who does not feel very strongly for the Palestinians, whatever the present state of politics may be. I don't know what the Saudis or the Emiratis might feel, but in North Africa there is a very strong feeling in favour of uh, more rights for the Palestinians. It doesn't make people anti-Semitic or necessarily, but they feel it strongly. In this case, uh, I suspect the Moroccan monarch will be able to get away with what he's doing. But there again, when Jews come back from Israel who are of Moroccan origin, they are welcome. They go on religious pilgrimages. Uh, there are old links between the two countries. But then the same goes for Tunisian Jews. When they go back to the pilgrimage in Jerba of Lagriba, they're very well received. There's no problem at all from whatever one politician or another may say, um, you know, the feeling is not anti-Jewish. It may be anti-Israeli, but it's not anti-Jewish and certainly not anti-Semitic in a European sense. What about in Algeria? I mean, Algeria must look upon this normalization process, what, askance, or, or do you think that they might be tempted? I doubt whether the Algerians will be tempted. I think the Algerians feel very strongly uh, about the Palestinians, though, with all the problems they've got. It's like in Tunisia, they've, frankly, they've got other fish to fry. Uh, but the Algerians, don't forget, were one of the, in a sense, they were, they were strong backers of the, the PLO from the beginning. They have trained the PLO commandos. They've been staunch friends of the Palestinians, though their great glorious third-worldist leaders and all that is long since gone by. They're a very conservative country in a way. But the feelings about the Palestinians are strong. And as in Morocco, and contrary to what many people may think, uh, the Algerians um, during the Second World War behaved like the Tunisians and the Moroccans. When the French Jews of Algeria, who were of Algerian origin, were deprived of their nationality by Vichy in 1940, the Algerians imams preached in every mosque of Algeria, you do not touch Jewish property or goods which has been expropriated. If you come into uh, Jewish property, you keep it in trust and you give it back to the Jews as soon as this problem is solved. So I think that the North Africans, maybe unlike other people in the Arab world, distinguish perfectly well and the Algerians between anti-Semitism and uh, anti-Zionism, or being critical, very critical, of the state of Israel. But I don't see Algeria recognizing Israel. I, it just doesn't seem to me on the cards at the moment, whatever the difficulties Algeria is in at the moment. Mm -hmm. You were speaking earlier about European responses to the uh, Trump maneuver. I'm just wondering, because I think it was Churchill who called it uh, the North Africa, Europe's soft underbelly, and that was in the context of World War II. But it, it has some resonance, doesn't it, today? And Europe has a stake in seeing the region achieve stability. 
What role do you think Europe should be playing, as opposed to the role they are playing right now? But what should they be doing? Well, there was a very ambitious policy which has moved in private conversations between Chancellor Kohl and Monsieur Mitterrand, which have never been made public, where in 1990, 1991, when reformers were in power in Algiers, Chancellor Kohl said to Mitterrand, we should both fly to Algiers to tell North Africa we haven't forgotten them. This was after the fall of the Berlin Wall. That fell on deaf ears. Mitterrand never did anything. But then the Barcelona process was launched in 1995, This was the uh, EU effort to strengthen relations with the uh, Middle East and North Africa. The problem then was that firstly, Zach Rabin was assassinated. And I think that uh, from the moment Zach Rabin was assassinated, in a way, the idea of a dialogue in the Mediterranean got killed because the peace talks between the Palestinians and the uh, Israelis uh, found that then we had 9-11 and everything became security, and in particular, the war on terrorism, that oxymor, uh, posed a major problem because it has morphed into a war for some people on Islam. Uh, Then the other point about the the economic side of the Barcelona Agreement, uh, a number of people noted at the time, including the Israeli Catalan (laughs) economist Alfred Tobias, that what was on offer economically in the process of Barcelona was not, was not even equal to the sum of its parts. And whereas some politicians like Mr. Strauss-Kahn, the former French minister and head of the IMF, said in 2002, if the Mediterranean, particularly the Western Mediterranean, does not become an internal lake, the European project will founder. And I'm still inclined to think that there is some truth in this. But the policy has been much less ambitious for all kinds of reasons. The divisions in North Africa are many, but then there again, these divisions suited the Europeans, particularly the French. The divisions between Algeria and Morocco suited the French for many years. But in the last 10 years, Europeans, not least the Italians, the French and the the Spaniards, have realized that the divisions in North Africa pose a major problem to their security and to their well-being economically. But maybe it's too late to change. I don't know. Now, you've mentioned France, the former colonial power in Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, a supporter as well of the Libyan warlord Haftar. How do you see the influence of France in North Africa? Is it positive or is it pernicious? Well, uh, I'm not alone in questioning what is French strategy. Uh, A noted French historian who knows the region very well, Jean-Pierre Filiou, wrote in in Le Monde, I think, a few months ago, just expressing his amazement that France should support Haftar, who is supported by the United Emirates, who in turn support some of France's worst enemies, Um, he wondered what game they were playing in Libya because Sarkozy went in to smash Libya. Why did he go in to smash Libya? We still do not know. But by smashing the Libya, and the Algerians warned the French, the British, and the Americans that if they smashed Libya, they would open the most awful Pandora's box. So France smashes is, is in the vanguard of smashing Libya. Weapons end up in the hands of, uh, okay, of Islamists in Syria. But then all the weapons flow into Mali. 
which nearly provokes the collapse of the regime in Mali and forces the French to send troops. But all these weapons have fed into what is an insurgency across the, the, belt, the southern belt of the Sahara, which is called Islamist, but it's also tribal due to the lack of water, to co old conflicts have morphed into a major problem right across the, the, uh, that belt, that southwest belt of Africa. And uh, what happened in Libya encouraged that. Secondly, the French in the last few years have pressured the Algerians to put Algerian boots on the ground because the Algerians have a good army in Mali. And the Algerians look at the French and they say, but come on, you smashed Libya. You made the problems of the Sahel, which were already very difficult, much worse. And now you want Algerian boots on the ground. And the answer has been a curt no. France has always supported Morocco to the hilt on, uh, on the Western Sahara. And of course, it's always had complicated relations with its not even its former colonies, since Algeria was were French département until 1962. For a hundred years, Algeria really was part of France, except that the natives didn't really exist. So we have this very complicated relationship, support for Morocco, great bewilderment in Paris and in Europe at what's going on in Tunisia, because too many people were... Uh, they had a kind of wide-eye optimism about democracy in Tunisia. Well, democracy in Tunisia first hasn't arrived. The country's in free fall economically and socially, so that could be added to the problems. So with all this history behind it, maybe the French could have done better. Certainly the North Africans have been very divided, particularly the Algerians and the Moroccans. But the period when France in particular could have encouraged unity in North Africa, opening of frontiers, France did not do it. France did not support the economic and political reforms in Algeria in 1988-1992, the first Arab Spring, if you will. Um, so we are now with a, a Europe and France, it seems to me, and not just to me, devoid of a strategy in a very complicated situation. And if you look at North Africa, well, there is no policy other than continuation, the continuation of what we've been doing for years, trying to encourage economic relationship, but no overall vision. So I think that what Churchill said all those years ago remains, albeit in very different circumstances, very much the case today. Mm, and uh, as you say, the decision to support the taking down of Gaddafi was very much uh, supported by the French president, Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, the president at that time. And um, the weapons, the weapons in the Gaddafi armory, they, they fell to the Islamists. Is that, is that the case? Can you, can you speak to that? Well, according to uh, a number of uh, uh, sources, including um, an American professor at Colorado, Professor Hendrickson, who's written a brilliant book on American on the militarization of American foreign policies three years ago, and he's not alone in saying that weapons from Gaddafi's weapon, weaponry were deliberately given to hardline Islamist groups in Syria, encouraged by the Americans, 
and by the French because there was this idea, and I'm not a specialist of Syria, that by arming these people you could help overthrow Bashar al-Assad. As I say, it's not me who says it, it's a number of, of specialists. It, with the case of Mali, it's a bit different because one forgets that the Saudis have spent billions of dollars over since the nearer taking of the mosque in Mecca in 1979, spreading Wahhabism. So they spread Wahhabism across that belt of Africa. And they spread it. They tried to spread it in Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco as well. And of course, with all the fragility of the Sahel, the droughts, the increasing population, Lake Chad is disappearing, their conflicts between settlers and people who have herds, and, well, you know, all the problem of Boko Haram and Niger and all this, then all kinds of very modern weapons are poured into this because these were weapons which Gaddafi had bought from England, from France, from America after uh, he gave up his nuclear pretensions and his uh, support for terrorism in the early part of the 2000s. All these weapons. So it really is a case of pouring oil onto fire. And now the French army itself, the French military uh, officers in Mali and the French president have talk, are talking about winding down slowly their operation in Mali because it is impossible to face up to all these problems with 5,500 troops. It requires a political negotiation in a very difficult circumstance. But if you look at the size of Algeria, which is the biggest country in Africa, and its position on the map, no political discussion about the Sahel, which makes any sense, can take place first before Libya is stabilised to a degree, and secondly, if Algeria is not involved. We are not there yet, and yet if Europe and France in particular want to have a policy towards Africa, well, if they don't have a policy towards North Africa, they're quite sure never to be able to have a policy towards Africa, because North Africa is the gateway to Africa. You know, I'm just thinking, too, that the other former colonial powers, Italy and Spain, I mean, there's just this hangover from colonialism, isn't there? Well, it's more complicated than that. The French, to this day, do not like the Spanish or the Italians taking initiatives in North Africa. And they've compounded their behavior, their mistake, I think, by getting very heavily involved in Libya to the fury of Italy, because it's Italy's former colony. Italy has interests. Italy was not in favor at first of smashing Gaddafi. Berlusconi made it quite clear. So the French have caused a lot of problems with the Italians, all the more as the Italians bore the brunt of the immigration crisis in 2015. And the least you could say is that the French were not particularly helpful so the Italians are feeling very sore. The only time in my lifetime that the Italians have attempted to have an independent policy on the Mediterranean was uh, 30 years ago when um, uh, Bettino Craxi was prime minister and Gianni de Michelis was foreign minister. That is the only time they tried to have an independent foreign policy in the Mediterranean. And when they came out in support of those who were uh, the Prime Minister, Monsieur Hamouche, who was the reformist Prime Minister of Algeria from 89 to 91, the French just lashed out at them. 
So I think there, you know, there is a problem. In the case of France, I think it's a failure of the imagination. I think that too many French hierarchs are still stuck. They're not the only ones, you could argue, that the British and the Americans are not very different. They're stuck in a world which has vanished or which is fast vanishing in front of their own eyes. And the behaviour, however difficult the Algerians may be, it's the same thing with the Turks, whether you like Mr Erdogan or not. Well, Turkey has been uh, chaffing to Turkey just doesn't want to be a poodle anymore. And that's the fact. So you've got these middle-ranking powers. And, of course, you've had the rise of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. All these countries, you have to take notice of what they think or feel. You can't just lay down the law in Brussels, in NATO, in Washington, Paris or London. Nobody listens. And I think that the French are not alone. And the Europeans are waking up to the fact that, I mean, they just have to negotiate with all kinds of people who 30 years ago did not matter particularly. Today, whether you like the Algerian regime or not, whether you like Monsieur Erdogan or not, you have to accommodate him or them. And I think this is the great difficulty. The French, like the British, it's a post-imperial day. The days of, uh, you know, when we could just speak and everybody would listen or obey, they've gone. And nobody noticed in the last 15, 20 years that the ground was shifting under them. And I think, you know, we've been preaching democracy, but then we, practice, we preach democracy in the Arab world when it suits us. When it doesn't suit us, we back dictators. So why are we even bothered to preach democracy? Why don't we just be real politicians and get on with economic relations and be intelligent? And I think there's a huge confusion myself, and I'm not alone. There is a huge confusion in what Europe wants to do, and for that matter, what the French, because the French matter in the Mediterranean. The Germans won't get too, too involved. But let me remind you is that in the United Nations Security Council debate on, on Libya, the Germans abstained together with the Russians, the Chinese and the Indians so, you know, the Germans didn't want to get involved. Monsieur Sarkozy took a decision which showed that he was the most lousy strategist where the Mediterranean is concerned that you could possibly imagine. So my puzzle is what on earth has happened to French strategy? What on earth has happened? One speaks of goalism, all these people from Macron to Sarkozy who claim they're goalists. They're not goalists at all. They're incapable of strategy. And this is the problem of France and today of Europe in a broader sense. Well, finally then, Francis, when you look at the fragility of the democracy project in Tunisia, uh, the lack of success of the Hirak movement in Algeria, return of a dictatorship in Egypt, the war in Libya, Morocco seemingly untroubled by the Arab Spring. Do you think the Arab Spring has failed in North Africa? Well, I wouldn't say that it's failed. You see, in Tunisia, it wasn't a revolution. They decapitated the system, but it was not a revolution. The interests are the same. The only thing that's happened in the economic interests is that the Islamist party has been accommodated in the sharing of spoils. That's all that's happened. But it's a slow fuse. The same thing applies to the Hirak. To have millions of people demonstrate peacefully in the streets of the major cities of Algeria for nine months 
this will leave traces. This, will, this, this is a marker. What happens next, I do not know. And to come back to Morocco, Morocco is relatively better run, notably economically, but Morocco still has a third of its people who can't read and write. It has huge differences in income. And I would argue that maybe the question of the Western Sahara and how you accommodate self-determination and the interests of Morocco, in a sense, it's the whole area which needs to grasp the nettle of democracy. Now, democracy is not just question of elections, but the question of having more transparent systems, more accountable systems, because no system in, our, in North Africa is accountable. And it's not that uh, Morocco may have been relatively more successful, but it's not accountable. Its rulers can do basically what they want. Algeria, they've got to reform the economy. But the question of accountability, of transparency, of corruption, of all these are problems which are common to North Africa. But they matter enormously to Europe, and I would argue even more than the Middle East. Why? Because there are... 20% of France has links with Algeria. Links of blood or links of people who lived in Algeria. How many millions of French people are of North African or part North African origin? That doesn't make them disloyal citizens. That does not argue, as Monsieur Macron says, for separatism in France. But the links with North Africa go back to 1830 when France invaded Algeria. This is 200 years. These links of France and now Spain and Italy, and Belgium, and, you know, and even England, where all these North Africans or people of North African origin link, should provide the basis for a much bolder policy. But unlike the Middle East, which is a long way away, there are links, but the links between Europe, not just France, but France, of course, preeminently, and North Africa, they are written in history. They're written in blood, but they're also written in great affection. They're, they're written in family links. They're link, written in strategic links. And until the French, in particular, recognize what they've done in history, with all its bad sides, okay, colonialism was tough everywhere. The British and the Belgians or whoever else weren't better than the French or worse, for that matter. But until history is recognized... We won't get anywhere because I will conclude on this. The Arab and Berber people have a very, very long memory. Since the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Europeans, including the French, seem to have just forgotten history. They seem to have forgotten that for 200 years they intervened in the Middle East. So if one side is amnesic and the other one has, sees everything through a prism of pain, then we can't have a dialogue. So we just have to restore history to its place and maybe have a discussion which is more frank, more open, uh, and then maybe we will move forward. But I think it is a revolution of the mind in Western Europe. Stop looking down on North Africa and indeed on other people. Consider them your equals, even if their democracy may not be as refined as us, but then... Uh, let me remind you that in view of what we've just seen in Washington and all the arguments about the honesty of the vote in England for Brexit, uh, the question of who is really democratic and what democracy means is a question which is now being posed ironically, albeit in different terms, on both sides of the Mediterranean, not just in the South. Indeed, indeed it is, Francis. Um, 
I, I think that the, the thought that Europe needs a revolution of the mind in relation to North Africa and the wider Middle East is a very interesting thought to conclude on. And I, and I thank you very much. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Francis Giles, Associate Senior Researcher at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.